from joining together on Sunday morning to celebrate the very thing that Christmas is all about, the family of God. So thank you for that. Ah, thank you. Please forgive me if I sound like a motorboat this morning, whatever. I've not been doing real well this week when Keith insisted that I preach. (laughs) I got sick. I begged him, please. He said, nope, you preach him. I just wanted to hear another good song. You ready? Are we on the time and all that? Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm, give me a moment. I, it's, I, I, I'm trying to figure out what to do, and as I said, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to do okay today. Is this on? The, okay, I'm learning how to do this machine, so you just have to bear with me on this. <clears throat> This morning, I want to talk about something of the season that we are in the midst of. You know, when we come to the opportunity of speaking the Sunday before Christmas or maybe the Sunday of Christmas and to say something concerning what Christmas is all about. is a daunting task because there's just so much to talk about. And so the task is never, uh, hmm, I wonder what I can say. The task is to take the mountain of material and from that mountain of material, grab a handful and say to the church, this is what God wants you to hear. Now, for me, that's a daunting task. I don't know about for you. So I want to start this way. What in the world is all the racket about? You know, this may have been the question that would have been raised on the night of Jesus' birth. Now, think about it. You are a shepherd. out in the field it's late at night you've been working hard taking care of all these sheep finally we've gotten the sheep calmed down and they're all sleeping you know it's like your child when she goes to sleep what don't say anything and sure enough you sneeze and then she's awake all night It's very quiet, very calm night. You're tired. You just want to kind of relax around the fire, and you want to go to sleep. You're just a little way outside of the city of Jerusalem. You're near the city of Bethlehem. Everything's quiet. It's a beautiful, clear night, stars. It's a beautiful night, a little breeze. 
And listen to what Luke says. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And suddenly, boom! All of a sudden, the dark night breaks forth in brilliant light. And the quietness is shattered. Now think how you would feel. You're in the darkness and the quietness and all of a sudden you see a great light and you hear voices. You know, we don't sometimes, when we read the Word of God, think about it personally. We don't apply it as in a way that how would it have been for those folks? And an angel of the Lord appeared to these shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. I guess they were filled with fear. And so would we all be filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, don't be afraid. Now, I don't know whether that would have helped me. I mean, this bright light, this being, whether he's standing or halfway in the air, I don't know. Where did you come from? Who are you? What are you doing? Don't be afraid. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Don't be afraid. Oh, I thought, this is where my water was. No wonder I couldn't find it. I wonder, what's wrong with my back pocket? (laughs) Whatever. He says, For behold, behold, pay attention to, look upon, think about, put your concentration on. Behold, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be to all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in the manger. Now, if that wasn't enough, suddenly there was with this angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men with whom God is pleased. What was happening? What's all the racket about? This is heaven's birth announcement. This is, if you let me say it this way, I don't like to make God too familiar. I don't believe in that. I don't think it's right. But this is, A proud papa saying, my son's here. My son's here. It's heaven's birth announcement. What was happening? You see, with the birth of this child, finally the long-awaited Messiah was being born 
in Jerusalem, finally. Awaited for how long? Ever since Genesis 3, verse 6. You remember that verse? Remember the last three words of that verse? The first part of it was Eve took the fruit, handed it to her husband who is next to her. And what are the last three verses, words? And he ate. And when Adam ate, the entire cosmos collapsed into the grip of sin. And death was now ruling and reigning over God's intention to bring life. Finally, since Genesis 3, 6, all the way through thousands of years, thousands of years, thousands of promises, thousands of prophecies, finally the Messiah is born. And you remember what the angel said, Behold, I bring you Good tidings of what? Great joy. Great joy. We sang about joy to the world. Whose joy? Now, typically, if we're like most believers, we default to say our joy. Right, Julio? Our joy. We have been given a present. Our joy. How many of you are anticipating joy Sunday morning, um, uh, uh, Christmas morning, from those who will receive presents. Aren't we anticipating joy? Like, yeah, it's okay. No, we are anticipating joy. The joy of those who are receiving. But you see, there's a greater joy. This is certainly the joy of those who are going to receive a gift. But there's a greater joy. It's the joy of the one who gives the gift. Sometimes we forget that. Behold, I... Bring you good tidings of great joy. This is the Father's joy in giving his Son. This is the joy of heaven. Because you see, we are now receptors or receivers, those who have received them, benefactors is the word I want, benefactors of the joy that God has within himself about what he, as a result of what he is doing in our lives. It's God's joy. You see, this is the same joy that we see in Hebrews 12 too. You remember that verse? For the joy set before him, what happened? Jesus, do you remember that? For the joy set before him, what did Jesus do? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God. It's the same joy, the same joy of heaven, of God, in finally bringing to fruition his eternal purpose in creating humanity. Finally, God is going to have his intention fulfilled upon the earth. He's been moving toward this intention ever since it was forfeited by Adam's sin in verse 6 of chapter 3 in Genesis. And for thousands of years, God was 
preparing and prophesying that he would fulfill his purpose and is finally here. How many of you had that same feeling when you have bought that special person whom you love so much, a present that you know he or she is going to love it? You just know it. Are you with me on this, some of you? But you bought it like four months ago. Now, I know that's not American, but that's the way sometimes it happens, Tommy. Sometimes we do things early. And four months before Christmas. Now, how many of you know that it seems like Christmas will never get here? Have you ever experienced that? Every day. And so you want to drop hints. You know, I know you're going to like your present. I've done that with Gene before. You know, oh, I, this year you're going to really like, what is, oh, I can't tell you. You know, but you're going to like, oh, please, oh, I can't tell you. Now, with Jean, she spoils it all because then she doesn't pursue it. But the building up, the anticipation of joy, this is God also. He's not sitting there, okay, go, boom, oh, wow. Because, see, God is a father anticipating this greatest day. Finally upon the earth, I will have a man according to my intention, a man after my own heart. What's the reason for all this joy? Why the joy? Well, you remember what I said when I... Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 123 says this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew is quoting from Isaiah 7, 14. It's a promise of God. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and this son's name shall be Emmanuel. We sang Emmanuel today. So the name Emmanuel explains God's joy. So what is that name? Because when Matthew says, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, then he translates it for the readers just in case they didn't understand what Emmanuel meant. Because Matthew, who is writing very much to the Jewish people, is also knowledgeable that others, non-Jews, are going to read this and say, Emmanuel, what's that? So what? His name is Emmanuel. Big deal. But you see, Emmanuel, in the name Emmanuel, is the reason for God's joy. In giving Jesus this little child, the name Emmanuel is revealing to us the very reason for God's joy. Ah, huh. someone should clap. I did it right. Now. <laughs> By naming this child Emmanuel, God is telling... What does Emmanuel mean, by the way? I forgot to tell you. What? God with us or God is with us. That's what the word Emmanuel means. By naming this child Emmanuel, what God is telling us is that Jesus came to recover us to God's original intention. Remember in Genesis 1.26... Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. 
So what is the essence of God's purpose for us? Why does he send Jesus to recover that, that purpose of creating us as his image? What is the essence of that? What is the essence of what Emmanuel means for us? What it means for us is we have now in Jesus Christ been brought back into communion with God. See, that's the joy of God. I now am going to have a people that I can commune with on a personal and intimate basis. See, this is where the glory of God is demonstrated and is most clearly seen. It's in our communion with God. What is the essence of God being in God's image? What is the essence of being a believer? <clears throat> what is the essence of being saved? What is the essence of being sanctified? What is the essence of walking with God? That man once more will enjoy communion with the living God. And this is what this season is all about. Remember that God is a single being. God, singular. But in this one single being, there exists eternally three distinct divine persons who live and in an eternal communion with one another. And so when we think of God, we must think of him probably in many ways, but one of the essential ways is this, that God is a communing God within himself. And so when he creates man in his image, he creates us to be a, an earthly reflection, an image on the earth, among ourselves and to the world. This is what God is all about. He is a tri-person God, triunity, trinity, in whom the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit experience eternal communion. This is the truth about God. And Adam was created to experience this and to display it along with his wife and any progeny or kids that they would have. So that on the earth, God would be displayed in truth as he is in heaven. So the name Emmanuel says that God created humanity to be in communion with him. Remember Genesis 3.8. And they heard, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day. Adam and Eve created we don't know how long they were in the garden. It could have been a day. It could have been a year. It could have been 10,000 years. We don't know. It's not in any way, in my mind at least, demonstrated in the text. But what we do know is this, that these two were not alone, that God enjoyed communion with his people, and they enjoyed communion with God. Remember in Exodus 29, 45, 
The Lord is explaining what his purpose is in giving the law and in constituting Israel and bringing this nation together at the Mount Sinai and making them his nation. And he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And then in Leviticus 26, 16, he says, 26, 12, I will walk among them and I will be your God and you shall be my people. So you see, why were we saved? To be in communion with God. To be created in God's image is to be in communion with God and to be also in communion with one another. Now, most of us are fine with the idea of being in communion with God, correct? Anybody, you don't want to be in communion with God? We're fine. That is a great, great work. But you see, there is an equation here. This equals that. And in God's heart and mind, the other part of being in communion with him is the part that where we have difficulty. We must be what? In communion with who? One another. We must be in communion with one another. You see, this is why Jesus was born. He wasn't born just to save me. Wasn't born just to give me my forgive my sin. Wasn't born just to give me eternal life. All of those were activities that he accomplished in me and for me and did for you in order to bring us back to God's purpose in creating us so that we would be a people living in communion with God. You see, if nothing, God is a family man. He is a father, a family man. This is the purpose for which Jesus suffered and died. It's the purpose that he rose from the dead. It's the purpose for which he was given all authority in heaven and in earth. So that we would be the people in communion with the living God. Now, this is a scandalous and absolutely ridiculous and revolting word for the world. There are religions out there that will absolutely be vomitous over the thought that how can people, soiled, sullied, sinful people such as we, have any intimate relationship with a holy God. This is unique. This is unique. Even in Judaism, it wasn't seen quite this way. It was pictured, but the fullness obviously comes in Jesus. This is a scandal. No religion has this, that God himself would descend and condescend first to create. You remember the creation story in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 7? Remember that? By the way, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, to the end of the chapter, verse 25, those verses, 7 to 25, they go between verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. You just look at that. That's where they fit. 
Chapter 1, I'm going to tell you in general what's happening. Get to chapter 2. Let me give you the details. So it's the same story. And imagine this. The God of glory, this eternal transcendent being, creates an earth. And then he enters that earth and he stoops down into the soil of that earth and with his hands he molds a man. What a condescension. What a love. What a purpose. What a kindness. What a selflessness. Why does he do this? Because you see, he is anxious to share himself with us so that we would fully understand who he is. And he creates this man in a loving, careful way as a potter, creating a beautiful vessel of honor. And then he takes this man up and remember the ruach, the breath of God blows into the nostril of the man and what happens? The man becomes a living soul. See, we read, oh, God created man, and we want him on. We're gone. There's so much in each one of these verses that we miss about God. And that purpose, that care, is blown away because of sin. And people say, well, you know, the Old Testament, that God is wrathful and mean and nasty and hateful. You know where we see the first evidence of God's unfathomable mercy and grace? It's in verse 7 of Genesis 3. Because when you look at Genesis, remember Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17? You had these two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of the tree of life, you may freely partake. Remember that? Did you see the movie? (laughs) But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, love has requirements about it. So, Genesis 3, 6, the last three words say what? And he ate. So, what did you expect Genesis 3, 7 to say? And they, come on, what did you expect? And they what? And they died. But did they die? No, they did not die. Why did not they die? Because man will surely die. But you see, God's people will have the sentence of death upon them because of their sin placed upon another man. So that in that other man's death, God's people will have the sentence of death lifted from them so that his people may be able to be reclaimed as God's people in communion with him. See, that's a massive revelation and work of grace 
that we see in verse 7 of Genesis. Our communion with God is what Jesus prayed for. You remember the night that he was betrayed? Remember that great prayer, John 17? Listen to just a little bit of it. He's praying to the Father about us, that they, his people, the church, that may be, that they all may be one, one what? In communion, in fellowship. Just as you, Father, are in me, just as we are experiencing communion together, I in you and you in me, that they also may be in us. That's the same us as let us make man in our image. So that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. This is Jesus' great purpose and great prayer request in the garden. Now, what does it look like? Let's just take a quick glimpse at Jesus' life to determine what does this communion with God look like? Now, why do we want to look at it? Why do we want to know something about it for ourselves? Because, first of all, we have to determine, are we genuinely in communion with God or not? Because those who are experiencing communion with God today, that communion with God will continue forever. Correct? Thems who are not experiencing communion with God today have absolutely no right to hope or expect that when they leave this earth, suddenly and in some way, mysteriously, they will then be given communion with God, having not experienced it on earth. It's not going to happen. For that which begins here continues forever after this life is over. And so it's important to see what communion with God looks like for a couple of reasons, one of which is, do I see any evidence in my life that I am actually in communion with the living God? Or am I in communion with the God of this world? See, because all of us are in communion with some God. Either the living God, Jesus Christ, or the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. All of us are in communion with a God. Every one of us will always, on this side of heaven, be in communion with another being who is called God. Either the little G, God of this world, Satan, or the big G, the God of creation. So it's important as we, we look at what this communion looks like to determine, am I in communion with the God of glory or am I being deceived? So what does this communion look like? This communion that exists between the Father and the Son in the Godhead. This communion of loving relationship through roles. 
What does it look like? First, it was a communion, and I'm only going to list a couple, four of these things, not extensive. <clears throat> it was a communion characterized by Jesus' loving and joyful submission to the Father's will in everything. You know, isn't that a horrible way? Isn't that horrible? We always have to get down to this issue of obedience. I mean, can't you get off this case and give us some better news than that? Adam lost everything because of one simple act of disobedience. And I've said this before. One man, one time, one act collapsed the entire universe. God takes obedience to him seriously. So when you look at the life of Jesus, there much you see here. But what you see here outstanding is this. That in every situation and under every circumstance, this man is under submission to his father's will. Listen to what John 5.19 says. Jesus said this. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. What are you talking about? There's a lot I can do. What does that mean? He can do nothing of his own accord. I mean, he can't eat. He can't lie down. But we're talking about nothing in relation to being compatible with and functioning in this communion. Nothing as to godliness. Nothing as to righteousness. I can do nothing apart from on my own accord. But only what I see the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So my first question about myself, am I in communion with God? Is my life characterized? Not to perfection, but at least is the essence or the preponderance of my life characterized by a disposition to obey and an activity of obedience. Is there a disposition to obey? And is there an activity of obedience? If you're here and you're living whatever kind of life, oh, it's okay, whatever. Or if you're a believer or you say you're a believer and there is an activity of sin and an ongoing activity, you know, a, a, a pattern of sin in you. You have a thought process that's sin. You're jealous that's sin. You, whatever it is. And if this doesn't bother you, then I think you need to think it out again. Because you see, this is not what communion with God looked like in Jesus. Any sin, no matter how large or small it is, should rattle us to the bottom of our being. Amen? Any sin <clears throat> should rattle us to the bottom of our being. I mean, look at 2 Corinthians 7, 7, I think it's verses 10, 11, and 12, right around in there. And Paul will give you some information about how we are to respond to sin. Jesus in John 5.30 says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Communion with 
God was not only characterized by, characterized by Jesus and loving and joyful submission, it was also characterized by a deep personal and loving devotion between the Father and Jesus. A deep, deep devotion. If someone were to ask you, what does the Christian life mean to you? Just give me a short little sentence. What is it to be a Christian? What would you say? What is it to be a Christian? Well, I'm saved and I'm forgiven of my sin. I'm going to heaven. Uh, You know, okay, fine. But is that the depth that we want to be in? Jesus' life was characterized by a deep, deep devotion and love to his father. 42 times in the gospels, Jesus refers to God as my father. And in fact, he did it so much and he used this term so many different times that the Jews on occasion took up stones to stone him because he said when using this term, he made himself equal with God. He made himself in communion with God in a way that no man can be in communion with God. My father. When you think of God, when you think of your your Christianity, I don't like to say it that way, but I say it that way purposely. When you think of your Christianity, does the fatherhood of God take center and abiding stage? God, Father, his love, his care, his ministry, his presence, Yeah, I want to encourage you, and please don't say you're busy, at least if you are. Don't tell me you're too busy for this, because I'm not interested in that. I want to encourage you to take time on a regular basis. And if you're not going to remember, take a note on this and write it down. Take time on a regular basis to be alone with just you and God. And in your aloneness, don't think about how much you need and what you didn't get and how you didn't get it and why you didn't get it and how you need it. Don't fill the time with all these people out there and all that activity, but fill the time with being absorbed by this, that I am loved by God, that he's my father. To me, the most astounding five words in the Bible in which is collected the entire rest of the Bible itself is this word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Astounding that this God would do this And create us for this kind of a fellowship. Knowing the result. Knowing the necessity of the payment. What a God this is. Are you with me on this? We're too quick to talk about the things of God. And too slow to contemplate and enjoy the person of God. He's a father. 
This is who he is to us. He's our father. Take time to be with him. I talk to parents, and I'll make dads the issue. doesn't matter. We have kids. <clears throat> and I said, do you have time? Do you pray? Yeah, well, I pray. Well, I'm going here and there. I'm praying during the day, whatever. That's fine. I, I, we do all that. I'll pray during the day. Do you pray during the day here and there? But you better where you drive. I'll see. You, know, it's, 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 you pray during the day? We all pray. How many of us don't pray during the day? We all pray during, okay. Well, what about your time with God alone? Well, you know, yeah, I know. And I say, do you have any little children? And of course, they know I have little children. They look at me like, yeah. And during the day, you see your son, hey, sweetheart, we're chatting all the time with our children. But suppose Drew came to you and says, Mama, I just want to sit with you and be with you. What does it make mama feel like? It's great. Dad, I just want to sit with you. Just want to be with you. Could we just be together? No issues, no requests, no nothing, just you and me. How old is your oldest son? 18. Luke! Is he back there? Is that Luke back there? Yeah. Would that be a Christmas present that you wouldn't, couldn't buy? Dad, just the two of us. Dad, just the two of us. Your daughter. Dad, just the two of us. Mom. God wants that too. And we need it. So why don't you, in this Christmas season, determine, I'm going to begin to spend time with my father. Communion with God, you see, certainly involves all this other activity. But if the activity isn't the result of, Dad, I want to be with you. What is it? I hate to say what the worth is. I suppose there is worth there, but I remember a few years ago, my grandson was at the house. Oh, you knew it would come down to that, and it's always going to. So you can forget about criticizing me. And he and I went outside and sat on the swing together. Now, had you looked at our mouths, we're not saying much. Just a little chit-chat. To the day I die, I will never forget that time with my man. This man I love. My main man. Just the two of us sharing one another without a whole lot going on. Learn to do this. Because I know what will happen. You see, the power and the motivation and the experience that you will derive from this will so permeate your mind and your heart and your thoughts and your memory and all about you that you will find that this is the backdrop of our obedience. 
This is the backdrop of our obedience. It was a communion characterized by Jesus' service of love to God's people. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve us. To serve us. Serving one another. We love serving God, but, and I have struggles in this. Serving one another. And you know, it's always easy to serve the person who's grateful and jolly and nice. And someone's going to think I'm talking about that person, but I'm not. But it is difficult to serve people who are cantankerous. Why? Because they treat you like a servant. You see, our communion with God allowed us to treat Jesus like a servant, and he took that abuse unto himself so that God forgave it and turned it around and caused us who treated him like a servant that now he has become the one we gladly serve. Communion, excuse me, this communion is characterized by the Father's unfailing and faithful love for his Son. Remember Mark 1.11 and a voice, remember Jesus is coming out of the water, John the Baptist has baptized him. You are my agapitos, is that almost? You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. God loves, I'm going to say it this way, so don't throw stones at me. God loves his boy. And the same love that God has for his son, John 17, 26 tells us this. The same love that God the father has for his son is now also for us who were saved. John 17, 26. What does that mean? That means that God does not love us any more or any less than he loves his son. And he doesn't love anyone in the church of Jesus Christ any more or any less than he loves his own son. And because of that, we are now freed in Christ in communion with God to begin to love one another. You see, have you noticed that the word love is common to each one of these that I have said? You may not have noticed that. Love is the atmosphere that informs and enables our communion with God. Love. First, God's love for his own glory, for who he is and how he is. Well, that's egotistical. No, it's only right. It's egotistical if it's not right. But it's honest because it's right. God is the only being in all creation who rightly loves 
who he is and how he is. Why? Because he's right. Secondly, is God's love for his son. And third, this great atmosphere of love is given to us. For God loves us. Ephesians 2.4. Why were we saved? Why were we saved? Ephesians 2.4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love. What love? Because he primarily loved us? No. Because he loved his son And in loving his son, he loves us. There's no disconnection between the love of God for his son and the love of God for us. The two come together. Remember at the beginning of the sermon I said this. We were created to bear God's image in communion with God and with one another. This is why we were created. This necessitates two questions, I think. First of all, how do we come into communion with God? How does that work? How does it work? By believing the gospel. Now, how many of us, before coming to this church anyway, went to churches and you heard the word gospel almost every Sunday. Hmm? You never heard it before when you came here? Sure we did. You just don't remember. This is the gospel. Do some of you remember that? This is the gospel. And the word of God was raised up, correct? Well, what's the gospel? Well, succinctly, the gospel is the good news. That God has sent his son to bear in his own body upon the cross the full guilt and penalty of all of our sin so that we would not have to incur the eternal wrath of God against our sin. So that in John 19.30 when Jesus says, it is finished the slate was wiped clean as to the guilt and the penalty. And the slate of our life before God is now clean as to those issues. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he now sends the Holy Spirit into the world, having been given all authority in heaven and earth, to begin to gather God's people from all corners of the world back into communion with the Father. This is the gospel. How do we come into communion with God? By believing the gospel that Jesus has paid the full penalty of our sin at the cross so that God now adopts us into his family. So that we are brought into full communion with him. You may be sitting here this morning thinking, wow, I've ne- just mm, never thought of that. I don't, mm, I'm not sure if I'm in communion with God. As I said before, you are in communion with a God. 
If you're breathing, you're in communion with a God. You're in sync. You're in fellowship. You're in harmony. You're walking in obedience to some God. Either the God of this world unto condemnation or the living God unto eternal life. Your decision this morning, having heard this, what do you do about it? See, God sent his son to bring us back into communion with him. And if you're not in communion with him, the question is, you've heard with your mind, do you have anything in your heart, your soul, your feelings that, I want this. I want, I, I want to be in communion with the living God. I want this. If this is what you want, I'm going to stop right now. I'm, I'm not quite finished. Hold on. We'll be okay. But you see, it's important. Because the probability is that there is at least one person here today that God has brought you to this morning to hear a message <clears throat> about Emmanuel. And Emmanuel has always been a song you've sung, but it never made any sense. And certainly you haven't experienced the reality of God with us. And today is God's decision day for you to say, today I'm bringing you in to communion with me. If you have any sense, feeling, desire in you, I am not in communion. I don't meet the criteria. You notice, did you notice I didn't say you had to be a member of Lakeview Christian Center in there? Anybody know? Did you notice I didn't say you had to be a Catholic or Methodist? Did you notice that? You can throw all those things out the window as far as the reason for being in communion. Did you notice we didn't say how good you were or bad you were or how much you tried? Did you notice any of that? The question is, have you been brought into communion with God by the Holy Spirit? If you're not sure, or if you know you haven't and you want to, let me just stop for a moment. I'm going to pray. And if this is your heart, you pray along, out aloud or stand up or sit down or whatever you want to do. But make that decision. Say yes today. Father, Father, for those in this room whom you are bringing into communion with you right now, Father, I pray that you will cause them and move upon them to say yes. So this is you, very simply, acknowledge, I have sinned and I'm not in communion with God. I want to be in communion with God. I recognize Jesus is the door into communion with God. He has paid for all my sin. I am now saying, yes, Jesus, bring me into communion with you. Thank you, Father. That's Paul. We know Paul. <clears throat> second, not how do we come in communion with God, but second, how can we image communion between the Father and the Son? How do we do it? How do we image it? If we are in communion with God personally, we must be in communion with God corporately. How do we do it? By loving one another. 
This is my command that you love one another even as I have loved you. Husbands and wives, are there issues between the two of you that is not love? You cannot remain in healthy communion with God and allow this to continue. Children and parents, are there issues in the relationship that is not of love? You see, because obedience is acting in communion with God. Obedience simply means I am acting in or out of my communion with God. It is not that I am trying to keep a bunch of rules. I am walking in and living out of and responding to my communion with God. Children and parents, are there issues here? They must be rectified and corrected so the enemy doesn't take opportunity. Are there issues in this church? Is there anyone in this congregation with whom you have difficulty or problem or angst or anger or unforgiveness? In order to walk in communion with God, you must deal with this. Don't just say, well, it's the other part. Jesus died for both people, the one who has grieved and the one who is grieving. But let's face it, both of us are the ones who are grieving And the result, both of us are probably being grieved. Our communion with God is a subject of all of 1 John. All of 1 John, our fellowship with God is a subject of that. You see, our love for one another images the community of love between the Father and the Son. Well, this is an accomplished work. Why? Because at the cross... Jesus has brought in us into communion with God. Listen to what 1 Peter says. St. Peter 1, 3 and 4. God's divine power has granted to us all things that are pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers, koinonia, Butch, I don't know if I still can say it your way, but koinonia, it means communion with the divine nature. It's an accomplished work. Ours is now to receive it by faith and to walk in it by faith. What is the grand finale? What is the grand result of our communion with God? As I prepared to read this scripture, it came to my mind as I read this scripture, and I'm not going to play the CD this morning. Perhaps at another time we can do that. How many of you remember Mahalia Jackson? Oh, incredible gospel singer. Incredible. I think she died in the 60s or 70s. But you go online and you put into your computer the holy city. The holy city. How many of you have heard of that? The holy city. It's incredible. And she sings about this city that comes down out of heaven. And the doors of the city are open wide to all who may enter. To have communion with God. Let me encourage you to go online and listen to the holy city. <clears throat> It'll be Several people, artists, but listen to Mahalia Jackson because she puts soul into it. Do you know what I mean? 
She put soul in it. And look, we're basically a white church, and we need more soul in us. We, we need more soul in us. What is the grand finality, finale of our communion with God? Let's stand as I read this. Revelation 21, the first four verses. This is the final result, the fulfillment, the fruition that begins today and will continue forever. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, the communion. You see? A loud voice from the throne of God. Behold, my people are home again with me. We're together once again. And this time, we will never be parted, for we'll be there forever. You hear the joy of God in this? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is Emmanuel. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That mourns in 